Our Father in heaven, you are a good God. You are a good Father to us. Oh, that we can be called your children. For such we are. What love is this that we, that we should be called the children of God? For we are the children of God. And so we pray, Father, that we would set our heart on you and you would make us pure as your Son is pure. Give us insight into what you have written. We need your word. We do not know the way. We are like, it's like we are in a dark forest without your word, but it is a light to us. And only through your word can we know which way is up and which way is down. Reason is not enough. We need your revelation. And so we pray, Father, that you would meet us now and have mercy on us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in Deuteronomy 31 and 32, Moses is ready to send the people into the promised land. We are almost done with Genesis to Deuteronomy. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we've been going from Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. We're up here to the very end. And he is about to send them across, but he won't be able to go with them. Moses, die, Moses will die on the bad side of the promised land. Does anyone remember what he did, what happened, what went wrong for Moses? He struck the rock. He struck the rock. God said, speak to the rock, and he struck the rock. And the reason he struck it, according to Numbers chapter 20, was he did not have faith in the Lord. He lacked faith that God could do it. And so he's going to appoint Joshua. This is, number, this is Deuteronomy 31. He's going to say, Joshua, you're the new leader. You're going to take them into the promised land. But before you take them into the promised land, before I pass away, I've got something I need to teach the children of Israel. Something they've got to remember, because this is so important for them. So this idea of remembering. There's different ways that we remember things. So I remember seeing a com commercial year, years back. I don't know if it's the truth or not. It said, smell is the best way to remember things. Like a smell will cause you to remember something in your past better than anything else. And for all I know, that's a, pa that's a pack of lies for all I know. It could have been marketing, you know. But, but it, there is truth to it, right? Like when I smell a particular cologne... I'm an eight-year-old boy, and my daddy is getting ready to go to work. Like, I know that smell. I remember. And sight. Other ways we remember things. Sight. Like, whenever I see the Twin Towers burning, I'm an eighth-grade student in my U.S. history class. That's where I am. I am, I am in eighth-grade, sitting in the far-left row, looking at the TV, which was not a flat screen back then, and I didn't know what was going on. Just New York City is on fire, you know? I, I, it brings me back. But it's not just smelling and seeing. There's another way to re remember, recall things, and this one's really powerful, sound. Um, you ever hear a song? When you hear that song... You are transported back in time to the first time you heard that song. Has this ever happened to you, or am I the only one? Yeah, Gary's like, yeah. I mean, 
there's this one song, and I won't tell you what it is, because it's kind of embarrassing. And, uh, but when I hear it, I am 16 years old in the backseat of a convertible with three of my friends driving down the highway at 1030 at night, and we are singing our heads off. I mean, that's what, that's what I, that's where I am. Why I was there, I, I have no idea, but that's what happened. But it's not just hearing the song that takes you back. Sometimes it's the actual content of the song that helps you remember things. So if you've got a three-year-old child and you're trying to teach this two- or three-year-old child body parts, you might sing to them, head, shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes, right? This isn't just a catchy song. It's, it's a way to teach, right? The song is teaching them body parts. Or how do you teach someone the alphabet? You don't just make them memorize 26 random bits of information because that's pretty much impossible. You rhyme it, and you put it to a, a meter, and you have a song. And the song educates so that they can remember. And that is exactly what is happening in Deuteronomy 32. Moses says, I'm going to teach you a song. God actually gave them the song first. And through teaching them this song, they will be able to remember what they should remember when Moses is not with them. So let's take a look at a little bit of what this song is going to do. But before we do, I just want you to look at how big Deuteronomy 32 is. That's where this song is. So just look at it. I mean, I've got the, the pew Bible. I keep calling it a pew Bible, though we don't have pews. And it's this whole page and almost and half of this whole page. So we're just not going to be able to break down all 43 verses in detail. So we'll do the best we can, all right? So just know that this will by no means be exhaustive. I'm telling you, we could do a long time on this song. And maybe we will one day. But that's not today. So look at Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 27 through 30. Trying to understand this song. And the first thing we're going to do about this song is start asking some questions. So we're going to ask, when does the stuff this song talks about happen? When? Does this song happen? We're just going to ask questions. We're going to ask when, what, who, why, and how. So very simple. Just when, what, who, why, and how. So I think that's all of them except where. So we're asking all the questions except where. So if you want an outline, you can just write all the question words down except for where. So we're going to start off with when. When does this happen? So look in your Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 27 through 30. Moses says, For I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. If you have been rebellious against the Lord while I am still alive and with you, how much more will you rebel after I die? It's like, if the teacher has no control of the class, what happens when the substitute comes? You know, it's just chaos. That's what Moses is saying. Verse 28 Assemble before me all the elders of your tribes and all your officials, so that I can speak these words in the hearing and call the heavens and earth to testify against them. These words are the song. I'm going to speak the words of the song. <coughs> Verse 29, For I know that after my death 
You are sure to become utterly corrupt and to turn from the way I have commanded you. In days to come, or literally at the end of the days, disaster will fall on you because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord and arouse his anger by what your hands have made. So you see that in the middle of verse 29, in days to come, or at the end of the days. Everyone except David and Anne, because they haven't been coming so long, should hear that an alarm should be going off in their head. Because we've talked about this phrase, in days to come, or at the end of the days, quite a bit. What is this time period known as in days to come or at the end of the days? It's not just a generic time period. It has the same meaning every time in the first five books of the Bible. Well, how about you tell me? Let's look at another passage where this shows up. Turn to Numbers chapter 24 because this song is all about what will happen to Israel at the end of the days. So we need to know what is that time period. Deuteronomy 32 is talking about what time period? So Numbers chapter 24, verse 14. The author writes this through, through a prophet. The prophet says, Now I am going back to my people, but come, let me warn you of what this people will do to your people in days to come. Same phrase. So what will happen in days to come? Verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab and the skulls of all the peoples of Sheph. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Who's the ruler? Who's the ruler who will one day conquer the whole world who comes from Israel? It's Jesus. The days to come are the time of Jesus. That's what they are. We've seen this quite a bit now. Some of you look disinterested in what I'm saying, and I hope that's because you like, I, we got it. You've talked about this enough. If, if, if you got it, then I am happy to hear that. You know, this is good. So he's saying, this song that you're going to learn, it's about what will happen during the time of Jesus. So that was 2,000 years ago, and it's still going on today, okay? Now, you might get confused, because your translation says, might say something like, at the end of the days, or something like that. Translations translate it differently. And so you might hear that, and you might think, are we at the end of the days? Is this the end? If Jesus is the end, it's been a long end. It's been 2,000 years. Seems like the end shouldn't be that long, right? The end should be like a week or something. Or something. That can be kind of confusing. Do you agree? Well, here, here's, how to th here's how to think about it. So, unfortunately, I, probably like you, am not a big fan of Shakespeare. If I was a big fan of Shakespeare, my high school career would have been a lot easier. And why I didn't like Shakespeare, one, I couldn't understand it. My fault. And two, it's so long. It just kept going. And... There's always how many acts? Does anybody know? There's always five acts. <coughs> and when you're in the fifth act, the play is almost over. Now, the fifth act might be the longest act of the five acts. The fifth act might be the shortest act of the five acts. There's no telling how long the fifth act will be. Just because you're in the fifth act doesn't mean the play is actually almost over. 
It just means you're in the final part. That's what this means here. We're at the end of the days. We're in the final. When Jesus came, we started the final part of God's plan. Now, that plan might go a long time, many years, but we're in the final part. What's left? All that's left is Jesus coming back, basically. Now, that might be a long time, but we are at the end. We've had Adam. We've had the flood. We've had a whole history, and we are at the end. So he says, I'm going to teach you a song so you know what you need to know. And this song will be about how you will rebel against the Lord. You Israelites will reject the Lord through the work of your hands. That's a term for idolatry. You will commit idolatry against the Lord during the time of Jesus. That's what Moses is saying. This is pretty interesting. Right. Next question. What is Israel's sin? What is Israel's sin? Well, you saw it there at the end of chapter 31, verse 29. You will do evil in the sight of the Lord and arouse his anger by what your hands have made. The, the work of your hands is a phrase in the Old Testament for idols, idolatry. You will commit idolatry against the Lord. And you see this in the actual song. Look at Deuteronomy 32. I'll just start reading. Listen, you heavens, and I will speak. Hear, you earth, the words of my mouth. Here's the song. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. So it's like, I'm teaching you this, and it's supposed to be like watering a garden. This is supposed to be life and health and goodness to you. Verse 3, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. And here's the problem. They, that's the Israelites, they are corrupt and not his children. <coughs> to their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? So Moses is looking into the future, and he says, as a prophet, I know there is a day coming. You will not be God's children anymore. Whoa! Then in verse 7, he says, remember the days of old, and now he gives them a long history lesson. God found you in the wilderness. He rescued you from the Egyptians. He took care of you despite your grumbling. He led you into the promised land. But when you were in the promised land, verse 15, Jeshurun, that's a name for Israel, Israel who's supposed to be upright, supposed to be Jeshurun, grew fat and kicked. Filled with food in the promised land, they became heavy and sleek. And in all their riches, they, quote, abandoned the God who made them and rejected the rock, their savior, they made him jealous with foreign gods. Gods they had not known. Gods that recently appeared. Gods your ancestors did not fear. You deserted the rock you, who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. They were his sons and daughters. And then they traded him out for a new God. We want a new father. Fine, that means you're not my children anymore. That's the way this is working. 
Verse 20, I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. Look at verse 21, and we will camp out on verse 21, the rest of the sermon. They, the Israelites, made me jealous during the time of the Messiah. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious. I will make them jealous by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. What is Israel's sin? Well, we saw it in the text. Idolatry. What is idolatry? Not worshiping the one true God. Okay, so you should have a question in your head. How is Israel not worshiping the one true God, the one true God, whenever Jesus came? Think about that to yourself. Jesus came, and Moses is saying, in the time of the Messiah, you will not worship the one true God. You will not worship the one true God. You will be an idolater. Look at Romans chapter 9, verse 5. Should have taken my own advice and put a mark over there. I'm going to be the last one there now. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. We'll read up to verse 5. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why is, why is he so sad? For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So Paul's <laughs> looking at the Israelites around him, and he's, he's, he's weeping. They don't know the Lord. I wish I could be punished for them, but I can't. What have they done that's so wrong? Verse 4. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worshiping, and the, and the promises. They had everything. They had all you could want from God. They had more than any other people ever had from the living God. Verse 5. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all. Forever praise. Amen. It is right there in the text. Jesus, the Messiah, is God. It says it explicitly right there. And Israel does not know him. They don't worship God, Jesus, which makes them idolaters. They are living in idolatry. The deity of Christ is serious business. He's either God or he's not. If he's not God, I'm worshiping a false god, and I deserve to be punished. If he is God, I'm good to go by, by his grace. Israel has chosen wrongly. They've rejected God himself. So what is their sin? Idolatry. It's idolatry. God has come down in person, and they say, no, thank you. We're good. Back to Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. Next question. We've already seen. When does this happen? When does this rejection of God happen? During the time of Jesus. What is the rejection? Not worshiping God. Jesus. 
Who is verse 21 talking about? They made me jealous, that's Israel, by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. Who is that talking about? That's my question. I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. Um, I want you to put your, your imaginary caps on for a moment. And um, let's say you pick up a book that you've never seen before. Okay, you've got your book here. And you're reading it. And as you're reading it, you get to page one and it says, There was a, there was a man named Malcolm Hayburn. And he was a World War II vet. And he served in China. You'd probably be pretty like, whoa, this book's about me? What? Or you pick up this book, and you read it, and it says, in the small town of Granville, New York, there was a man named Gary. He was part of the Birch clan, and everybody was his cousin. <laughs> Gary, would you be a little surprised? Yes. Yes. We could do this for everyone here. Well, what just happened? What I just illustrated is what just happened in the Bible. You just stepped into the story. God will make Israel jealous with a non-people. So those who were not his people, they become his people. You see what's going on? God's looking at Israel and God's saying, I'm your God, Israel. And they're saying, no, you're not. We're going to go worship these non-gods, these false gods. And God's like, I'm jealous. Like a boyfriend's jealous if someone's hitting on his girlfriend right in front of him. That's a good jealousy, right? That's a good jealousy. If someone hits on my wife in front of me, am I supposed to like laugh and chuckle? Like, ah, that was funny, Jim, Peter. Like, no, I should be jealous for my, loves of, for my wife's affection, right? So God's like, you've made me jealous. You belong to me. And you're cheating on me. So you know what? If you're running off with them, with those false gods, I'm going to go and I'm going to get a new people. And they're not Israelites. They're a non-people. Up to this point, they're zeros. They're nothing. They haven't mattered up to this point. And I'm going to make them my new people. So that way I will love them and they will love me and they will have all the blessings. And you, Israel, will look at them and you'll get jealous and you'll say... We've been missing out this whole time. I need to go back to God who I left originally. I need to go back to Jesus. You just stepped into the story. You are the non-people. It's you. If you trust in Jesus, it's you. That's about you. Don't just take my word for it. Look at how this song ends. Look at the last verse in chapter 32, verse 43. Translations differ on verse 43. The Hebrew text literally says in verse 43, Rejoice, nations who are his people. And most translations say something like that. This one here says, Rejoice, you nations, with his people. You see that in verse 43? Look at it. Look at the beginning of verse 43. Or somewhere in the middle. It depends on your translation. There's some, uh, some, some really technical text, textual criticism stuff which we will, will not talk about but don't you see that the nations are being lumped with God's people 
Before Jesus came, it was just Israel and everyone else. But now everyone else is being lumped together with God's people. The non-people have become God's people. Look at Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. And we'll end this little drive through the Old Testament in Romans once we finish with the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter, and I'm sorry, Hosea 2.23. Hosea 2.23. I know everyone's like, where is Hosea? Will I ever find Hosea? (laughs) Hosea 2.23 talks about the verse we just read in Deuteronomy. And Hosea says, I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. When will this happen? Hosea 3.5. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings at the end of the days. At the end of the days, during the time of Jesus, the nothing people, the Gentiles, will become the people of God. That's amazing. Why is that amazing? Your existence as a Christian is urging the Jewish people to return to God, return to Jesus. You are here. And you're like, I know God. I know Yahweh. The Jewish God is my God. He has taken me in. And the Jewish people are supposed to look at you and be like, what? You're not Jewish? How do you know my God? And you're like, I know your God. How do you know my God? Jesus. That's how. God came down, and I trusted in him. And now I know the Jewish God. And the Jews are supposed to say, huh. I must be missing out. I must be missing out. It's like the little kid. It's like Luke's got a new birthday toy, right? And it's awesome. My little three-year-old, he's got his birthday toy. What's Abby do when Abby sees Luke's new toy? You want it, right, Abby? She goes, yeah, which is a normal reaction. That's what God is saying. We've got the greatest thing ever. We've got Jesus. And why did he do this? So the Jews would look and say, I want that too. I'm missing out. We're going to forego Romans on this. But Romans 9, if you want to write it down, Romans 9, 24 through 26. It says what I just said. It just puts it all together. It just it does it all right there. That's Romans 9, 24 through 26. Why does God do it this way? That's our next question. I already got into it. We saw it back in Deuteronomy 32. Why does God save the nations? Well, he, we saw it. To make Israel jealous. This is a good jealousy. It's not a bad jealousy. Um, The idea, like I mentioned, I'll say this briefly and then move on because I've already said it, is that when we turn to Jesus and we are the beneficiaries of God, the God of Israel's grace and mercy, Israel is supposed to be jealous and want to turn back to the only place where we can receive those blessings. 
don't be tripped up by this phrase, jealousy of God. Um, I'm sure you've heard of Oprah before. It's like the most powerful woman in the world. <laughs> um, I don't know if you knew this. She was actually raised Baptist. Now she's New Age and, and really gone off the deep end theologically. She even hosts something, I think, called Super Soul Sunday. and She would have 100,000 people tuning in online to her spirituality stuff. So she's like the biggest pastor in America. Don't know if you knew this. Um, so she grew up Baptist, though. And she said, I saw this interview, she was about like 27 or 28 or 29 in the Baptist church. And the preacher was preaching, saying, God is omniscient. Woo! God is, uh, uh, God is uh, omnipotent. Woo! Everybody's cheering. God is a jealous God. And she said she heard that. And she thought, I don't know if this God is for me, if he's jealous. That sounds kind of petty. You have all the power and all the wisdom in the world. Why do you need to be jealous? That's a sin, right? And Oprah actually says that was her be the beginning of her turning away from the Lord. Isn't that interesting? So I don't want you to be confused on this. We touched on it briefly. Um, there's good jealousy and bad jealousy. <coughs> I actually looked it up in the dictionary. I looked up the word jealousy in the dictionary. The second option was um, relational jealousy. That was the second meaning. In other words... You wanting the affection of someone who has pledged affection to you. And that's a good type of jealousy, don't you think? It's called commitment and unity. That's what that is. And that's what God is jealous for. God is jealous for our love. And I want that love from him too. So this is actually wholesome. This is a good jealousy. That's what this is. Okay. So why does God incite jealousy in Israel? So that way they will want what they should have had the whole time. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, oh, let's turn to Romans. I told you we'd take some pit stops over there. See this from Paul's own words. Romans chapter 11. Look at verse 11 in Romans 11. The Apostle Paul and the Lord say, Again, I ask in verse 11, Did they, did Israel stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? No, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Verse 13, I am talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride or I magnify in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. That's Paul saying what I just said in his own words. Paul's a Jew. So why does he spend all of his time trying to convert Gentiles? Because his hope is that by converting the Gentiles, 
the Jews will see and want in on the game. That's what Paul's, that's what Paul's mission was. Okay? So, lastly, how do we respond? How do we respond to this truth? Israel was supposed to memorize this song. This song that said, one day we will turn away from the Lord. And in the day that we turn away, the song basically serves as a big, I told you so. Like, I told you this would happen. You will fall away from me when the Messiah comes. Because you will not worship him as you ought. And so I will save the Gentiles to try to entice you to return to me. How do we respond to that? Well, sometimes people try to be really, really clever and try to make up their own applications, but sometimes the Bible gives you the application, and you don't really have to be that clever. You just have to know how to read or listen to someone who knows how to read. The first application is in Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. What's the summary of this truth? Here's the summary. As I have it in this translation, as I mentioned, your translations will differ. If you really want to talk about that, you can come and talk to me afterwards about it. Rejoice, you nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. So what's the conclusion to this song? Rejoice. That's the conclusion. What's the point for you? What's the payoff? Be happy. That's what rejoice means. Be excited about this news. Why? Because God will judge his enemies. He will defend those who follow him, his servants. And, most be and the best of all, he will make atonement for his people. I think you know the answer. When did God make atonement for his people during the time of Jesus? You know it. On the cross. On the cross. That's the hope. How can Gentiles who have been sinning apart from God ever be accepted in his sight? Their sins must be atoned, literally covered over. Who covers our sins? Jesus. Deuteronomy ends by looking forward to the day when we will be part of God's family through atonement. And that's what Jesus has done for us. I mean, God's purity is whiter than this sheet, you know? And our sin is darker than this font. And the only hope is for something to cover it up. Praise God that Jesus came, that he loves you. He doesn't play favorites. He wants all people to know him. Welcome to the family. We are the people of God. People want to talk about what circles they run in. Oh, I know this politician makes me big stuff, right? I'm in with him. Or... I'm part of this club at school. That makes me special, right? Or I graduated with honors. I'm part of that group. You know what group you're part of? God's group. 
doesn't care if you're white collar, blue collar, doesn't care if you're smart or you're dumb, you're rich or you're poor, doesn't care about your GPA or how many clicks you fit into or how well liked you are at work. Hear me and rejoice. You are God's people. You belong to the one who matters most. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. So that's the first response. Rejoice. Christ has bought you. And now you belong to the one who matters most of all. You belong to the one who made the heavens and the earth. He's a good father. Second, how do we respond? Hold on to Jesus, lest you be cut off. Hold on to Jesus, lest you be cut off. Where do I get this from? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, God says this, It is mine to revenge. I will repay. In due time their foot will slip. Their, the, the day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. What he's saying is, during the time of Jesus, those who do not pay attention to him, vengeance will be taken on them. They will be judged for not following the Messiah. They will be judged. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews reads it in the same exact way. Isn't it amazing how the Bible is always quoting itself? And as far as I can tell, it's always quoting itself correctly. I just love that. This book comes from God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, and here he quotes from our song, he quotes it, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured when you endured in great conflict full of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Why is the author of Hebrews saying this? Well, think about our passage. Catch this. Israel was God's son until they became, quote, corrupted, until they, quote, were blemished, until they were, quote, foolish and unwise. While God is uncorrupted and unblemished, he is always wise, and he is never foolish. 
Israel stopped looking like their father. That's what happened. And it reached a point where God finally said, like father, like son. If I am a father and you don't resemble me at all, it proves that you aren't my son. It proves you're not my children. God cut Israel off from relationship with him. And Israel only has one way to know God. And it's the same way we all can know God. Through Jesus Christ. And so in the words of Romans chapter 11, if God would cut off Israel, what do you think he would do to you? Israel did not follow him, and God finally said, enough! So what would God do if we turned away? Yes, I prayed the prayer. Yes, I was baptized. But if I fall away, do you think God's going to say, oh, you prayed a prayer, you're good to go? No. Saving faith is lasting faith. And if you truly believe in him, yes, he will keep you if you're his. But if you're not his and you fall away, proves you don't know him. If God cut Israel off, he'll cut us off if we don't follow him, if we don't know Jesus. So hear me. What does a church do when one of their members does not follow Jesus? Just like God cut Israel off, we cut the member off. <clears throat> this is called church discipline, and it is for that member's good. We don't want the member who's not following Jesus to think they're following Jesus. That's lying to them and endangering their soul. We love you enough, member of, of new creation, to tell you, if you're a member and you're not following Jesus, we will tell you. You're not following Jesus. We have no confidence that you know him, and we will remove you from the church so that way you see how serious your plight is. We don't want you to be lost. You hear me? This is serious stuff, but church discipline matters. Do you believe Jesus is God? Do you worship him, or are you an idolater? Are you faithful, or are you corrupting yourself and becoming like the ways of the world? Confess your sin to the church. Walk in the light. Do not be swallowed up in the darkness. Persevere, in the words of Hebrews chapter 10. In the words of, he, of Romans 11, do not be cut off. And when you have sinned, and when you have <coughs> failed, like we all do, what do you do? Rejoice, for there is atonement for you. Do not be too proud to kneel before Jesus again and again and again. Let's pray. Our Father, we kneel before you as sinners. We don't deserve your grace. We are not even ethnic Jews. We Gentiles have walked in darkness from the beginning. We have not known you, but you knew us. You came to us. You sent your son for us. He shed his blood for us. Our sins were covered, and now we we rejoice. Praise the Father. Praise the Son. 
We praise you, Lord God, that we are your children. We are no longer blemished. We are no longer corrupted, but we are whole in your sight. Our sins are covered, and we stand before you as white as snow. Give us grace by your Spirit to persevere. We do not want to not know you. We don't want to forget. So use the church. Use the elders, use these group of people filled with your spirit to keep one another going in the way we should go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.